Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Bulls and George Osborne. So we're back. A few days to go till Christmas. Have you done your Christmas shopping? I've still got to do mine. What do you mean you've still got to do your Christmas shopping? I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I, always, I, I believe in doing Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve or the day before. I want to kind of get into the final spirit. I like a Salvation Army band in the shopping centre, like a mince pie halfway through the morning. I love to leave it really late. Uh, yeah, our house has been like the uh, Santa toy factory for the last month. Everything is wrapped and ready to go. We're, we're all set. And we had mm. an early Christmas present on this podcast because we have just got the news that we've had over a million downloads, which is amazing, completely Good exceeded our uh, expectations. Uh, so if you if you like the show, then please give us a great review on whatever podcast app you use, you know, on Apple, Spotify, whatever it is. And if you don't like it, don't bother. And I think we can no say review. to the uh, we can say to the other centrist dad podcasts out there, a bit like uh, Rambo when he leans into the microphone and says, "We're coming to get you." Was that Rambo? I know that reference is completely lost. It, it, I have it, to say, you know, of all the things in my life, <laughs> when I thought of George Osborne, Rambo, I mean... You can't be a 52-year-old man born and brought up in this country who does not know all the Sylvester Stallone and indeed Arnold Schwarzenegger movies from the 1980s. Anyway, back to the the here and now, away from your film fantasies. Uh, did you have a good week? I've had a good week, but actually the highlight, I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, but certainly the most incredible moment of the week was at Alistair Darling's funeral, which you were at, or it was a service service of Thanksgiving, and it was in the cathedral, the Episcopalian Cathedral, not the Church of Scotland Cathedral in Edinburgh, St Mary's, uh, which apparently is called the English Church, Mm -hmm. uh, I discovered. And it was, you know, it was one of those sort of great British moments, the, the big service in Edinburgh, the whole of the Labour Party there. I was about the only Tory in the village. But also friends and the family of Alistair Darling. Amazing speeches by his two children. Rachel Reeves gave a very impressive address. And I thought, you know, Alistair was a very modest man, not a showy man. I thought coming away, walking out of the service, I thought, you know, he would have really liked that. He would have thought they'd done me proud. And... uh I think all credit to everyone who organised it. That's right. It was beautiful. It was um, very warm. It was quite understated. You know, it didn't brim with um, avert emotion. But then Alistair was never that kind of man as uh, either. His humour was always sardonic. And uh, as everybody kept joking about at the service, um, he was not somebody who, who gave hugs. He wasn't that kind of demonstrative person. But he was a lovely man. For us, actually, it was the second funeral um, or service in a few days because... 
I'd also been with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Keir Starmer and all the Labour people the week before at Glenys Kinnock's funeral service, which was a very different event, packed small church, tons of people there as well, more demonstrative, more kind of emotional. She was a an amazing um, feminist hero for many of us when we were growing up in our teens and our 20s. Um, you know, she could have been the leader of the Labour Party rather than Neil Kinnock. That was just the way in which it, it turned out. And Neil Kinnock was there with all of his family, who also made amazing speeches. And Neil Kinnock um, cried louder, laughed louder and sang louder than anybody else at the funeral <laughs> in a very, very movingly fabulous Neil Kinnock way. And again, both Glenis Kinnock and uh, Alistair Darling, I think, would both in different ways look down on their memorial services in the last few days and feel very um, proud and, and touched by the, the warmth um, expressed towards them. So, yeah. Quite, I'd say, um, you know, I'm, I'm just making an observation. I was also at Nigel Lawson's funeral a few weeks ago and there were lots of Tories there. But there's something about the Labour Party that is a real tribe. I don't, we can talk about whether it's tribal or not, but you feel it's a real movement. And I guess I felt that at the Anastasia Darling event. You know, prime ministers, past, potentially the future prime minister, but also all sorts of Labour MPs. And I have to say, every single one of them that I spoke to was unbelievably nice to me and friendly and warm. And uh, I didn't feel at all unwelcome, quite the But reverse. you know why? Because they're all listening to you on this podcast, and they're all they're all just kind of <laughs> massive George Osborne revisionism going on. Maybe 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 that's what's happening. <laughs> well, who says there needs to be some revisionism? <laughs> anyway, on to uh, on to this week. Who says? First of all, it's been a big week in um, the Middle East. David Cameron, I think, having a real impact as Foreign Secretary. In some ways doing the heavy lifting rather than Rishi Sunak in calling for a sustainable ceasefire. So we'll talk about what's happening in Israel and Gaza, and in particular, also the UN vote, which seems to be coming, although keeps being deferred, calling for some form of ceasefire. Then we should talk about the end of the year and how Rishi Sunak's been doing on his pledges. Very specifically, the economy pledges, because we've just had new inflation numbers. And one which we haven't talked about so much, which is the NHS waiting list pledge, because there's a junior doctor's strike heading into Christmas, and that will be doing further damage to the government's attempts to try and deliver on that pledge. And then our third segment, we always talk about something which people not may not be quite seeing the significance of. And I think Christmas is coming, and I guess lots of our listeners will be imagining MPs kind of finally get away from Parliament, get away from all the politics of Westminster and all the kind of factional arguments which have been going on, get back to a bit of R&R back in their constituencies. But of course, actually, politically, when you go home to your constituency and you're with your party members talking to voters, sometimes that's the moment when you can find out what actually the mood in your constituency, where you've got to be re-elected in the next 12 months, what that mood is feeling like. Often it can end up with quite a lot of... um, worried and nervous members of parliament over Christmas or Easter or over the summer vacation. And then the other thing is, with uh, Christmas, it's also an opportunity for um, the opposition, if they get their act together, to put the government on the defensive in the media battles. Because even on Christmas Day, there's still a BBC and an ITV news. So who will win the battle of the Christmas media? We'll talk about that third. But first of all, Israel, Gaza. When we started off 
uh, the very beginning of our podcast, pretty much, um, just after the, the terrible events of October the 7th, the uh, Hamas attacks on Israeli citizens, the taking of hostages, we said that in public, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer would be supporting Israel and its right to defend itself, to respond, but privately they would be worried. And actually over the weeks, those worries have become deeper, I would say more intense, but there's been a change, hasn't there, in the last week or so. David Cameron, the new Foreign Secretary, talking publicly about a sustainable ceasefire, not something that uh, the government or the opposition were willing to say a few weeks ago. I totally understand countries that just sign up for the immediate ceasefire, say they want a two-state solution and don't reconcile those things. But I think we should try and reconcile those things. So yes to urgent pauses, yes to aid in and hostages out, yes to sustainable ceasefire and yes to two-state solution. So the first thing is, you, you said it, David Cameron is making an impact now as Foreign Secretary. And a very senior Labour figure I was talking to on the flight up to Edinburgh was telling me that David was proving what a difference he makes as a politician compared to some of the recent foreign secretaries, that he's a Rolls-Royce back at the Foreign Office and that Britain's foreign policy effort is upgraded by him being there. I'm going to challenge him, though, and indeed Keir Starmer and everyone else who's talking about a sustainable ceasefire, by just asking the question, what makes it sustainable? Why is it any more credible to call for a sustainable ceasefire than um, saying, you know, you want an immediate end to hostilities now? You know, Israel is not going to start negotiations with Hamas. Indeed, it makes it absolutely clear it wants to eliminate Hamas. The rest of the world in as much as they're engaging with this, say, obviously Hamas also can't be part of any kind of long-term government. People like David Cameron are saying, we want a credible government for the Palestinians and a two-state solution. None of those things are at the moment within reach. And I think the most difficult question, and one that no one's really prepared to confront for very understandable reasons at the moment, is, is it going to be possible to have any kind of sustainable ceasefire if at the same time you're saying you want to eliminate Hamas, because one half of this ceasefire has to come from Hamas. But isn't this about, firstly, kind of putting pressure on Israel to allow a second round of uh, a pause to allow aid and support to go into Gaza again, and also to try and revive the successful round of um, talks which led to hostage releases a couple of weeks ago. A lot of pressure on Netanyahu internally in Israel to do more to focus on the hostage issue. He had the kind of the huge embarrassment, the, the horror of um, Israeli uh, soldiers shooting three Israeli hostages by mistake uh, and also, last weekend. let's be clear, these men were holding white flags, were doing everything to avoid being shot. And it makes you wonder what exactly is the Israeli army doing in Gaza when it says it's trying to protect civilian life. Exactly. But then the second thing is, when you talk about a sustainable ceasefire, both Hamas, if they're there, and Israel have to believe that there is some way forward which involves a discussion, a conversation, a negotiation, some sort of two-state solution. Isn't this a, a response to the growing view that neither um, Hamas or the Israeli government led by Netanyahu want any kind of negotiated settlement? Yeah, Absolutely. So first of all, from Hamas's point of view, they're saying they're not going to release any more hostages 
unless there's a permanent end to the uh, Israeli offensive. And you can sort of understand, I'm not saying I in any way, of course, sympathise or get into the head of Hamas, but you can understand the logic of, well, hold on, last time we released some hostages, the uh, fighting restarted almost immediately and the IDF, the Israeli army, are all over us. So why would we release some more hostages? And from Hamas's point of view, you know, they don't want a two-state solution. They want to eliminate Israel. And all they're hearing from the other side is that Israel wants to eliminate them. So it, I think it's kind of quite convenient for the British government, the American administration, the Labour Party, the UN to call for a sustainable ceasefire. But neither side at the moment in this conflict, I think, sees any particular benefit in coming to the negotiating table or, or coming to any kind of drawn out cessation of hostilities. Which means if there's going to be a sustainable ceasefire, both sides have to change. And maybe that's a, a change in, you know, in leadership in the Palestinian territories, maybe also a change in Israel as well. Don't you kind of increasingly look at Netanyahu and see a politician under kind of huge pressure domestically? He will, in the end, be judged um, by Israelis as to whether or not he was prepared to defend Israel. Why did he allow the October the 7th attacks to happen in the first place? But then since then, you know, growing scepticism about his leadership, opinion poll ratings falling, rows with the military, tensions in his coalition, the exposing of what tacitly he's been allowing to happen in terms of attacks by settlers on Palestinians in the, the West Bank. And from his point of view, he knows if he's removed, then suddenly he's under huge pressure and potentially pressure because of all of the corruption charges he's faced. The one thing that keeps him in power is a continuing war. That's the one thing which allows him to keep saying to people, and, no, and you've American, got to back me. And American support. Because it's interesting... Which is why this language about a sustainable ceasefire is actually saying to Netanyahu, you know, this is not a blank check. Well, yes, but the US have not signed up to that language yet. The US ultimately have a veto. They have a veto both in the sense that they can block anything at the United Nations, but they actually have a veto over Israel because... You know, if they were to support United Nations resolutions that demanded a ceasefire, Israel would be completely isolated. And Israel is currently depending on US military imports to sustain this campaign. You know, it, it actually requires armament shipments from the US because they've gone through their own stocks. So it's interesting that Biden administration is coming under a lot of pressure. Biden's handling of the situation is not being supported by the American public. His younger Democrat voters are deserting him. But he does have leverage, and Secretary State Blinken has leverage, which, frankly, you know, the British government doesn't have, the other European governments doesn't have. I mean, that's not to, you know, just take away from the work that David Cameron is doing. And, you know, he's doing it in partnership with unusual people like the Green Party foreign minister in Germany at all. But ultimately, these are decisions that are going to be taken either in Washington, imposed on Israel, or in wherever Hamas makes its decisions. And at the moment, I think there's just quite a lot of verbiage without any real sign of how this begins to come to an end. Although I made a reference to this um, last week or the week before, Tom Fletcher, the former diplomat, now I think principal of Hartford College in Oxford, remembering back to the late 2000s when there was then a UN motion about um, a ceasefire and the UK government decided to vote for it 
And that pushed America from being against into abstaining. And aren't we seeing the same things unfolding this week? America doesn't want to be isolated in the world at a time where, look, frankly, Russia and China look like they are joining with many other nations calling for progress, which America is resisting. And what David Cameron, Rishi Sunak, other foreign ministers are doing now through the UN is putting pressure on the Americans to shift their position and maybe that will work. But do you think it's possible, and I only put the question out there, that at some point... Hamas is going to be part of the solution. Now, that is totally unspeakable at the moment. But, you know, you have the Hamas representative. He's going around negotiating things in Qatar and Cairo. And it reminds me a bit of, you know, the endless times I used to say as Chance Exchequer, you know, there's no talking to the Taliban. Or I guess a previous generation of politicians who said, we're not going to talk to the IRA. And it was like unthinkable. And of course, the memories of that disgraceful and disgusting attack in October are still so fresh. But I just think it's all, unless you find some way to include, if not the Hamas leadership, but the support base of Hamas in a solution, it's not sustainable. Well, that um, is why pressure is being put onto Netanyahu to, to start looking for kind of a basis for negotiation. And nobody wants to say that Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself and to protect itself. But when you say it's also got to conform with international law, well, that's something it actually has to do. And, uh, you know, we had Alicia Cairns, the head of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, putting Rishi Sunak under pressure on this very issue earlier in the week. Surely there is a precedent that you are able to say if you believe that too many civilians are dying, that bombings have been indiscriminate and therefore that the principles of necessity and proportionality are not being upheld. Uh, you're putting words in my mouth. Others may you're, have said No, that. your exact words were too many civilians are dying. You've just repeated it here yeah, as well. Yes. And now... But, too many civilians are dying. Of course, of course, too many yeah. civilians are dying. That is different from saying humanitarian law so has who, been broken. So I think every, every civilian, quite where frankly, is the responsibility every, every, too many every, civilians every dying? civilian dying is a tragedy. <laughs> every where does the responsibility sit for that decision making? Sorry. Where does the responsibility sit for too many civilians dying? Well, I mean, well, again. Uh, Ask Hamas why they embed themselves no, in civilian populations. That's a genuinely an extraordinary question. It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Sunak was under pressure, but I don't think he's feeling any broader pressure much in the Conservative Party. Although there's a pretty interesting, if people want to follow a kind of side story on this, Ben Wallace, till recently the Defence Secretary, wrote an article and has come out being quite critical of Israel. And uh, he's been attacked by the Jewish community here. And he, he, in fact, wanted a right of reply in one of the Jewish newspapers, the Jewish Chronicle, and that was denied him. So it's interesting, not all conservatives are completely behind the government on this. But I would think it's much less pressure on Sunak than Keir Starmer is facing from within the Labour Party at the moment. That's right. And the truth is that David Cameron calling for sustainable ceasefire has allowed Keir Starmer to move Labour's position on, some would say, belatedly. Do you um, think Starmer should have got ahead of Cameron? Well, I... Or too risky for an opposition leader? I think, look, uh, Starmer has been right to kind of resist the the pressure he faced early on to just go for a ceasefire and blame both sides. He was right to um, defend 
Israel's right to defend itself and to protect itself. And I don't think he's lost from that, although it's caused complications for him in some parts of the Labour Party and in some constituencies. But I think one of the things he will look back on and reflect upon is that in in this sort of foreign affairs style politics, you always have, even when you're taking a hard position, you have to put in place the ladders which allow you to um, to retreat or to move on or to come down a little. And he didn't do that early on. So the focus on, for example, sticking by international law could have given him a way to start being more critical of Israel two or three weeks ago. He didn't really give himself that room for manoeuvre early on. That was probably a mistake. And that's what David Cameron has done. David Cameron has allowed him some language which Keir Starmer can now come around consensually. This is what Keir Starmer said, I think, just today. I do support a sustainable ceasefire. And um, what we're arguing for is a return to the position we were in just a few weeks ago where the hostilities did cease. That provided the opportunity for hostages to be released, provided the opportunity for very much needed humanitarian aid to go into Gaza, but most importantly provided a foothold for a political process to actually uh, resolve this in favour of a two-state solution. We are strongly in favour of a two-state solution and that has to be something which international partners are very, very clear about and is not in the gift of Israel. And the truth is he could have said pretty much all of that at the beginning and he didn't. And the hard line position he took early on is what's really caused him all these complications and moving into a more nuanced phase, a more Israel-critical phase, which is where the government is as well, will ease the pressure on Keir Starmer. I think there's an interesting question we might return to in the new year, which is, has the Jewish community been reassured by Keir Starmer's very strong line on Israel and uh, reassured that the kind of anti-Semitism of the Corbyn era is behind the Labour Party? Or have they seen the reaction from some parts of the Labour Party to Keir Starmer's position and thought, oh my gosh, look, you know, behind Starmer, there's still, you know, a, a lot of people we don't really like the look of. So it, anyway, but we can... We I mean, can... To look, look, to be fair, unlike the Conservative cabinet, I mean, the Labour shadow cabinet has been 100% united on yeah. this. So it's actually not been a bad demonstration of unity. No, it's, it's also, by the way, I think Starmer himself has handled it well. I think there's something we should also note, because when we started talking about this right at the beginning of this podcast, when we first launched it, we both observed that the conflict in Gaza had not spilt over into the wider region, despite lots of people's fears at the time, and therefore was not really having an impact on the world economy. That is starting to change because of something happening in the Red Sea, which has been triggered by events in Gaza. And that is the Houthi rebels. These are Iranian-backed rebels in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, and they are firing missiles now at international shipping, at oil tankers that are traveling through the Red Sea. The US, the UK are sending warships and others are to try and patrol the area. Companies like BP are announcing that they're not going to be sending oil tankers through the region. And it started to push the oil price up. And this is definitely an unfolding story. And if that shipping lane is closed, it's one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, and it's close to oil tankers, it's going to create longer journeys for those oil tankers, and that is going to put the price of oil up, and that means higher inflation for everyone. That's exactly right. Geopolitics normally impacts on economies through the oil price, and that can be because of supply issues, like the canal not being in use, or 
or more general uncertainty, which pushes up oil prices. So far this week, the oil price rise has been tiny. I think so far, we're still right that there's not been a big wider economic impact of Middle East instability. But in 2024, that could definitely change. So let's turn now to the domestic situation here on the economy and to what's been happening with inflation, but also what this means for the wider political pledges that Rishi Sunak made at the start of the year. So we had the news this week, inflation down to 3.9%, still above the target of 2%, but clearly on a downward path. Um, It's the one pledge to get inflation down, which Rishi Sunak is going to meet this year. But of course, it's happening because the economy slowed down. Uh, In fact, the last figures, the economy actually contracted. And that's happening because of the big rises in mortgage rates, interest rates we've seen over the last few months. So is the inflation number coming down good news for Rishi Sunak? Or is it a flashing red warning that actually, this is the consequence of a slowing economy, which could end up being quite tough for the government in the new year? Well, I'd say at the moment in Downing Street, they are looking for any piece of good news and fast falling inflation. And as a result, lower interest rates to come and cheaper mortgage deals, you know, are a good thing. I I, I was at a restaurant uh, this week and bumped into a Downing Street party, basically a Christmas party in the restaurant. And, you know, they were all very excited about the inflation numbers and falling interest rates. And that's clearly how they're thinking about their election campaign. But you're right, there's a reason why inflation and interest rates are coming down. And that's because the economy is weakening. And the big company in the world that invests in gilts and the UK currency, that's PIMCO, very well known to you because I think your brother works there, does he, he not? He does for anyway, many I'm, years. I haven't consulted him. Absolutely. Uh, but PIMCO, Nor me. <laughs> PIMCO put out a report this week saying that they think there's a much greater likelihood of what they call a hard landing for the British economy in 2024. In other words, you know, the economic news could be getting quite a lot more gloomy. But I think if you're in Downing Street, you'll be saying, thank God inflation's coming down. Thank God those interest rates are coming down. That's something upon which we can build an election campaign, and it means we can do a big tick on one of the Rishi Sunak pledges. Look, there is a tendency in the way the economy is reported um, to swing from one extreme to the other. So one minute, Bank of England under massive pressure because inflation's too high and the economy's overheating, suddenly into Bank of England under pressure because the economy is um, slowing down fast and is it going to be a hard landing? I think the reality is for the government, what they need to do is be through this quickly. They need to be out the other side. They need people to say that they're through the worst, inflation's down, we can start cutting interest rates. The reality is, if the economy slowed a bit more softly, if inflation came down a bit more slowly, if everything was a bit more extended, that would actually mean interest rates would stay up higher for longer in 2024. And a bit of a short, sharp shock happening in October, November, December now, maybe even PIMCO's hard landing, if it's happening now, which means by the time you get to the spring, they're through it and they can say it's worked, interest rates coming down, the economy's starting to recover. That's actually quite a good place for the government. So it's not clear to me that an extended, soft, difficult period is better or worse for the government. than um, It's all about direction, isn't it? I mean, in the 1992 general election and in the 2012 Obama re-election, it was all about the direction the economy was heading in. 
That's the critical thing. And so when you get to an election late next autumn, this time next year, if the economy is improving, that's the basis of at least a fighting chance for the Conservatives. But you're right, if it's just a prolonged period of mixed news it's not good. and no kind of sense that things are on the turn. But anyway, that's the economy pledges. We've touched on the, we won't, I don't think now. Small boats. We won't do small boats again. It's not working. I've yet to find a senior member of the government who's massively in favour of the policy that they're doing everything to promote and defend at the moment. But my search will continue in the new year. So then we've got... Well, I think Does that include the foreign secretary? Not the, I'm not not the foreign secretary. I don't, of course. I on this he's show he's too busy. I, he's too busy on this. He's too busy dealing with um, global affairs rather than international events like 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 he's, international migration. He's, he's quite sensibly, uh, you know, dealing with the easier issues like the Israel Gaza conflict. Um, While so defending the ECHR at all times. Let's well, move on. Let's move on. He he. Do you note that uh, I predicted we wouldn't be coming out of the ECHR while he was foreign secretary, and we are not. Anyway. We then turn to, I think, the most underreported of the Sunak pledges, but could be absolutely central to the general election, which is getting NHS waiting lists down. And although they have just started to fall at the back end of this year, so there are 7.7 million people, which is basically one in 10 people in this country or over one in 10 people in this country waiting now for uh, an operation. Although they have just started to fall, they are still half a million higher than they were at the beginning of the year. So they've got a big problem with the NHS and it's not made any easier by the fact that as we're recording this podcast, the junior doctors are on strike. You know, what the junior doctors are asking for at the moment is completely undeliverable. I mean, they're not asking for a 6% pay rise. We've just been talking about inflation at 3.9%. They're not talking about a 6% pay rise, an 8% pay rise, a 10% pay rise. Everyone else in the public sector has settled for figures around that across uh, government. The junior doctors are asking for a 35% pay rise. And they make an argument that they've been underpaid, you know, during the austerity period. So they'll, they'll certainly blame me for that. But, uh, you know, the truth is that is totally undeliverable by no any gov- government. Exactly. No government could, um, could meet these demands so anywhere near them. They're going to have to climb down or they're going to have to stay permanently on strike, whoever is the government. Um, and I think their broader arguments, I thought this was actually well brought out in an interview with the president of the BMA on the Today programme a couple of days ago, their broader arguments about the NHS and its funding are rightly matters, not for the British Medical Association or for junior doctors, whether they're in training or not, but for elected governments. And this should be fought out at the general election. So I can see why the government has got to resist these claims. I can see why the government's trying to say, look, this is totally unreasonable. But the truth is, you know, it's doing real damage to the government's attempt to get the waiting list down. It it has added to the waiting list, although not hugely. It's added, according to some calculations, about 3% to the total waiting list. But nevertheless, it's also having the effect of stopping all efforts to try and reduce those waiting lists. And the government is careering into a general election year with a massive NHS problem. That's right. And I think um, people seeing other public sector workers, often on lower wages, settling for lower settlements are not going to be hugely on the side of junior doctors for this massive pay rise, even if they're sympathetic to what's happened to their pay over 10 years. And so in one sense, it does help Rishi Sunak. He will be able to say when asked about his pledge, why are you missing your pledge this year? He'll be able to point to the junior doctor strike. But the idea that that solves his 
political problem more broadly for the election, I think is for the birds. Because the reality is with the National Health Service, it's not about what you see on the news. It's not about the political argument in Parliament. It is the lived experience people have with the NHS week to week. Because so many of us have a member of our family who works in the NHS somewhere, or somebody who is in a procedure or on a waiting list. And so if it doesn't feel like it's getting better, if that's not the mood and the direction, then a political argument about who's to blame, it's not going to cut the mustard. Let me try a bit of fantasy politics here. So Rishi Sunak calls up Ed Balls, says, would you like to be the health secretary? Ed Balls says yes, which I know is quite likely, but what could you do in the next year that would make any difference? What would you, you know, if you're just running running the system hot to get your NHS in better shape for the general election, what would you do? Oh, look, I mean, first of all, he's not called me and, 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 you know, and I wouldn't want to stop doing our podcast. However, it's a really good question. And it's partly a good question because it may be too late. It may be hard to do anything now which will have an impact upon that mood, that sense of feeling and direction in time for the election. But I was amazed in the autumn statement that they didn't do something on resources for the National Health Service this year and next year. That seemed to be the big political gap because there is stuff you can do which has an immediate impact upon capacity in the NHS, not necessarily, by the way, paying more money to doctors. I mean, after we had the tax rise in 2003, I think we all looked on from the Treasury at the renegotiation of the GP and consultants' contracts and thought, was that really the first priority? But there's things you can do to get money into the system, which starts to ease the pressure. That's interesting. You thought basically too much of the extra money that Gordon Brown found for the NHS essentially disappeared into higher pay awards that didn't need to be given. That was um, certainly, I mean, look, maybe we were being typical Treasury, but that was absolutely our worry in 2003, 4-5. There was very generous restructuring of the contracts for higher paid people in the NHS, when actually the biggest priority, which we also did, was to get more people to come in and train and become doctors and nurses and to work in the health service more widely. And I I think if I was Rishi Sunak, I would be resisting pressure from the doctors. But you'd want to end this strike. That is one thing you can do, right? But well, but um, not if they're not willing to be to be reasonable. And to be fair, the nurses and then Unison and the kind of wider NHS employees have struck deals, even though they have lower salaries and with lower uplifts. And then the doctors are asking for. So I would be looking at a deal, but not at any cost. But what I would be wanting to do is to show I was acting now to ease the pressure in the NHS in the next 12 months. And if I said to you, what has Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt done in the last six months to say we're making the NHS better? Well, they're pushing more care, aren't they, towards pharmacies and GPs and they're trying to unclog the hospitals. Long-term reforms when there's a short-term financial pressure. Now, what about, there's a, of course, there's a white knight coming over the hill, the great Wes Streeting. So he is the shadow health secretary. He is getting rave reviews at the moment. Uh, do you remember, I'm, I'm being nostalgic here, but you remember, Ed, when we were the rising stars? And, know. you know, we used to get these. Anyway, Wes is getting all these. Uh, I'm not sure I ever did, actually, but anyway. <laughs> Wes is getting all this great press. Uh, he's a very personable, he's very smart. Every time I hear him on the radio, I think, God, that guy really is a very, very good communicator. He did a good interview this week. And the, um, uh, including saying he wouldn't give the doctors what right. they wanted. 
Yeah, and I think he's also been sort of hinting at some quite interesting broader thoughts about the NHS and its financial sustainability because underpinning all of this is no real uh, expectation that if there's a Labour government in a year's time, there's going to be many billions of pounds more for the NHS. I mean, this Labour government, if it comes, is going to inherit an incredibly tight set of public expenditure plans. And unless it's prepared to go for a big tax rise, and remember, they actually voted against the national insurance tax rise that Sunak proposed when he was Chancellor to fund the NHS, and assuming they're not going to put up VAT or income tax. So where are they going to get the money for the NHS that comes on top of what the Tories are providing? And if they're not going to do that, are they going to reform the NHS? Are they going to be like Richard Nixon goes to China, to use the political phrase, i.e., you know, be the great bold reformer because they have permission to be so on the NHS? Or are things just going to muddle along? Well, I think he's doing a good job talking about prevention, the use of technology, using facilities of the NHS seven days a week rather than five days a week to be more efficient, all good stuff. And he needs to be talking about reform. Interestingly, he's not sort of getting involved in um, the old canard of the private sector would run it better, which Tony Blair talked about a lot in the 2000s. And then you allowed Andrew Lansley to experiment with in 2011-12 and prove that actually didn't work really well. well it was actually the other way around. Getting ditched. Those reforms were such a muddle that they ended up killing off some of that involvement of the private sector that uh, had started under Tony Blair. And it was a good thing, in my view. It's true, although I think that was partly because um, he opened it up and then you had to close it down. And the closing down ended up being um, such a, a big taking back control of the NHS at the centre that all came to an end. No, look, Streeting's talking some good stuff on reform. He's got to be careful because he's also got to make sure that... Um, that he maintains morale amongst Labour voters. And they want to know that Labour believes in the National Health Service and is going to make it better. And it's just important that he keeps an emphasis on that. And the reason why... It's not so easy being the Labour Health Secretary, isn't it? I mean, I remember when Patricia Hewitt was booed, I think it was, at the nurses' conference, wasn't it? I mean, you sort of assume it's a great job in a Labour government, but there's such a weight of expectation and there's a limit of what you can actually do because, you know, the Treasury is not giving you a huge amount of extra money or certainly not anytime soon. Maybe they will be able to. Although when Patricia Hewitt was doing it, I mean, at that time, the, the, the resources flowing to the NHS were um, were great. And I think, look, West Streeting's challenge is that he knows he can't turn the NHS round in the first parliament of a Labour government without substantially more resources than are on the table. I've and, got to pick And the out. other reforms will help, but they won't solve it. So I've been looking at some of them just because, you know, I think it's worth giving this a bit of an airing. I've been looking at this. It's quite amusing. The uh, opposition are promising, as we know, to get rid of non-DOMs, the, the non-DOM tax status. And they say that raises £3.2 billion. And I've been ticking off what they want to spend this £3.2 billion on so far. So there's breakfast clubs for every child. That's the Shadow Education Secretary's pledge. Then Wes Streeting has spent that same money on an NHS workforce expansion, i.e. more doctors and nurses, two million more appointments, an overhaul of outdated equipment in the NHS. And then Keir Starmer's gone and spent the money on 700,000 extra dentist appointments. And what he tells us is supervised tooth brushing. That really is the nanny state in action, literally supervising our tooth brushing. George, are you auditioning here to get back on the Tory front bench? You know, are you so riled by David Cameron being foreign secretary that you're going back to your roots? <laughs> just, I mean, you know, you want to be the shadow, shadow health secretary. I'm just, I'm just trying to remind people how it's done. Oh, 
I mean, presumably it's quite a good thing to brush your teeth but in order you then prevent preferably a couple burns of times on the National Health Service. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I'm making the point that it's a classic thing. They found one pot of money, yeah. which is abolish the non-dom status, and every shadow minister and even the leader is saying, oh, we spend X, Y, Z. And it just shows that I'm sure you know, when we a ask, they will tell us exactly how this all adds up. But I mean, you know, in the end, if you're in opposition and the sums don't add up, you're in massive trouble. And um, you have laid down the gauntlet and we'd better find out um, mm. soon whether or not these sums add up. I thought that they were mainly spending this non-doms money on um, NHS stuff. I didn't know it was going for breakfast clubs. So it's something we need to interrogate. Mm. Now, anyway, it's Christmas time. So coming up, we're going to be looking at some uh, festive questions that you've sent in. Uh, and we're also going to be examining first, how do the politicians spend the Christmas New Year period? <laughs> So Parliament has risen, MPs going back to uh, their constituencies. I think there's a tendency to think that um, this is when the pressure's off away from Westminster or the infighting. Actually, sometimes it can be a pretty tough time because you get back and you see your party activists, you talk to voters and you find out they're really annoyed. If you go back to Easter 2008, it was going back from Parliament to constituencies in the context of the local election campaign, which suddenly made MPs realise that things were going badly in terms of the abolition of the 10p tax rate. It was the holiday period which persuaded Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown they had to do something about that. So uh, I wonder what the mood will be like for both parties going back to their constituencies. Oh, I think they will be pretty excited in the Labour Party, won't they? That they're coming into the election year and they're ahead and they could be in government after. I'm not sure you're right about that. I think they'll be quite nervous. Are they going to throw it away? Is it really solid? And also, I think there is a morale issue around the issues around Israel, Gaza and all that conflict which happened within the Parliamentary Labour Party. I think they'll be be a bit, bit edgy as well. Really? Gosh. <laughs> they better get used to harder times ahead. Oh, no. they make, well, they've, make been they've been in opposition so long, they've forgotten what it's like. <laughs> I think people are quite gloomy in the Tory party. I mean, I've picked up that, you know, they feel they've sort of thrown quite a lot of things at the poll deficit this autumn. Uh, you know, there was the party conference that was scrapping NHS2. Not, not a policy I supported, but they put a lot of weight on that. There was delaying the green pledges, if you remember. There's the big autumn statement, which no one's talking about, where they cut national insurance and nothing has worked as they head into the uh, winter. I mean, it's not a time, of course, where the party leaders can just take a break. I was uh, on the aeroplane coming back from Alistair Darling's funeral with Keir Starmer, and we were having a nice conversation. And um, he was, you know, kindly wishing me a happy Christmas. And I was saying to him, you know, of course, you can't really have a break. <laughs> sort of you know, his eyes raised like, yeah, I know. Because this is a really important period for an opposition. It's it's sort of when the government takes its foot off the gas and a well-organised opposition can use these crucial periods when actually people are at home and listening to the news just to get some opposition messages across, to land some hits on the government. That period between Christmas and New Year, there are news bulletins every day, newspapers every day. Those first couple of days of the new year, they're really important, I think, for an opposition to get right, particularly as you come into an election year. And it's about two things. It's about, first of all, not giving your opponents a break, as you said. You want every cabinet minister to be being rung up by their advisers on Christmas Eve to say, look, this got a real problem. There's this attack story. We weren't expecting it. Something about a helicopter here or a procurement contract there or something which is putting you under pressure. Because 
the impact upon um, cabinet ministers of having to spend their kind of Christmas day dealing with some story is big. But the second thing is, if you are Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, what you want to do is start the new year with a sense of, you know, optimism, a year ahead, a big moment, big opportunities to shape the future. And it's much better to have done that having had a kind of clean, straightforward, non-controversial Christmas. Whereas if you've been mired by issues over the Christmas period, then it makes it much harder to have that relaunch. And quite often, you know, if you think back in, in history, quite often you have scandals or problems or difficulties which happen over that that period. And it just makes it harder to do that New Year relaunch. Well, our big New Year launch in 2010, that was the election year when we were in opposition, went badly wrong when we put out a poster, a big face of David Cameron, next to it says, we'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. And we got into a round, not about whether we were going to cut the deficit, not about whether we were going to cut the NHS, but in fact a row about whether the picture of David Cameron had been airbrushed or not. And uh, it was against a sort of background, which was supposed to be somewhere in Britain, but it turned out the ad agency had used a European location. Anyway, it was (laughs) badly wrong right at the beginning of that uh, election year. So no airbrushed photos would be my recommendation at the start of 2024. But if you think back over kind of history, you know, the the row about Peter Mandelson and the home loan, the row about Jack Straw and his son being taken to the police station for drugs issues, the kind of um, Tim Yeo and his kind of out of wedlock relationships. The list goes on. A lot of these things happen in the run up to Christmas or between Christmas and New Year. So quite often things come along and trip you up. Now, I do have one thing to report, which is I'm pretty certain there won't be a general election in January 2025, which I thought was definitely a possibility. But I've been doing some some research. I've been talking to various people and Downing Street apparently have definitely ruled out uh, a January 2025 election. They've, I think they've said something publicly, but I had discovered this earlier. But I have to say all my conversations do indicate to me that they are looking at the back end of next year. I don't think anyone at the top of the Tory party is now thinking that a spring election, a May election is a a running possibility. And even an October election is not really, I think, on the cards because they'll be thinking of using September, October to launch what is more likely, in my view now, to be a November, December election. But it will be in 2024. So after the clocks have gone back, polling in the dark... But and such an unusual thing in our Didn't in our stop politics. Boris Johnson it, five mm, years ago, it will be almost, it didn't. winning that big majority in December, in a December election. Anyway, we wish all those members of parliament go back to their constituencies a happy Christmas, even if they're getting an earful. Well, almost all of them. All of them, even, <laughs> even if they're getting an earful from their constituents and from their members. And we'll be watching the news very carefully over the next 10 days. Who's driving the news? Who's got the appetite to win? Who's got the media opposition, which is delivering the stories? I remember there being one time when a Christmas story, I suddenly get called to say the department was doing some guidance. It was, it was when I was at education. The department was doing some guidance about playground equipment and broken glass. And we were told that one of the tabloids had worked out that actually this would stop there being play equipment in pub gardens. The kind of story which could lead the news all mm. Christmas Day. Labour will ban adventure playground equipment in pub gardens. And I just said to my guys, kill it. Change the guidance. Whatever it is, it's wrong. Act now. You've got to be quick. And um, we were able to go back and say, guidance doesn't say that. The great British right to get pissed 
while your children play in some playground in the corner of the pub continues. It did. I mean, to be fair, the guidance two hours before may have said one thing. It no longer did. That is what's called being on your toes at Christmas. I did actually give an interview once in a pub playground in your constituency. But unlike David Cameron, you didn't leave your kid at the pub and drive off with your security. I did not. (laughs) Anyway, on to questions. And the first question today comes from Claire. Hi there, my name's Claire. I live in Nottinghamshire and work in the charity sector. I have a festive question for you. When you were in the cabinet or shadow cabinet, was there ever an emergency that took you away from your Christmas dinner? Thanks very much. Love the podcast and can't wait for more episodes next year. Bye. Thank you, Claire. Um, glad you like it. I'm not sure if I'm going to say... You're a Nottinghamshire lad, aren't you? I am. There you I go. Like... Born in Norwich, grew up in Nottingham. Good. Anyway. All right, my duck. Um... The I'm not sure there was an emergency. There, there were different moments where my Christmas day was kind of hampered. There was one year when Gordon Brown was kept ringing up on Christmas Day about um, the appointment of his new chief of staff. I just thought, can't we do that on Boxing Day? On Christmas Day itself? Ah, yeah, Christmas Day and Boxing Day, yeah. Um, and then we had the, in 2004-05, we had the imminent publication of the Robert Peston book, which um, we hadn't actually seen yet, but I did know the phrase that which Gord had said to Robert Peston about Tony Blair, there was nothing he could say to me now that I would ever believe, was about to kind of hit us on um, <laughs> two days after New Year's Day. And that sort of slightly hung over my are, Christmas. Are you confirming for the first time that Gordon Brown said that? I'm not confirming that, but he did do a <laughs> conversation with him and I don't know where else he got it from. Right, well, my answer, Claire, was a domestic emergency that happened at Dorneywood. So that's the Chancellor's country house residents. And one of the great perks of the job and one of the great pleasures of the job is that you you have this house. And on Christmas Day, the staff provide an amazing Christmas lunch. And uh, it meant uh, I could invite lots of members of family and friends and so on. Presumably you pay for it, don't you? Oh, you pay for it. Yes, you pay for it. It's but important you know, to say that. Absolutely. It's all paid for by you personally. But on the morning when I had all these people coming over for Christmas lunch, I had my one of my brothers staying and um, he let the bath overrun in his bedroom. And this brought down the ceiling. But unfortunately, it was above the kitchen. And so the whole ceiling and everything came down onto the kitchen in Dorneywood. And um, of course, this was a, you know, hugely embarrassing. I didn't really forgive my brother uh, <laughs> for some time. Gosh. But the amazing team at uh, Dorneywood, who were really professional, uh, they... Uh, dealt with that crisis and uh, a, a delicious Christmas lunch was served. So it wasn't just a turkey that was stuffed? No, Your well, whole Christmas meal was in, in No, jeopardy. no, no. They, they, they rescued the situation. Um, they, the, the, so that was, a, Very good. that was a quite stressful Christmas. Thanks very much, Claire. Our next question comes from Philip. Hello, George and Ed. Many thanks for a great podcast. You are both chosen as one of the three wise men, but who would you choose a third one? The only stipulation is that you both agree on the same person. Happy Christmas. That could take us hours. So I've got a proposal. How mm. about the great Peter Mandelson, who <sighs> was at the uh, funeral? I was, uh, uh, I was talking to quite a bit at the funeral. We can't give him another excuse to call himself the third man. I mean, <laughs> Bobby the third man. Um, I, look, I think let's just explain. Bobby was the code word that Tony Blair used 
during his leadership campaign when he was trying to do over Gordon Brown and Man- anyway, well, in that- 1994, and then I think Peter's book is called The Third Man. Isn't it? it is, yes. It's a bit presumptuous, it given is. the other two were prime so, minister. Look, I mean, if we have a wise, but we man- we love Peter. If we have a panel of 15 wise men, Peter's in. But if it's three, we need to talk further about this. I wonder whether we shouldn't choose one of our um, kind of esteemed former civil servants who we've worked closely with: Nick McPherson, John Kingman, Mike Ellum, Beth Russell, even Treaty Vidira. One of those people, people who aren't necessarily names people will know but that you and I have worked with and people who actually are wise and experienced and might be helpful to us. Why don't we just say the third man and woman is the treasury? Okay, I'll go with that. What a wise idea from these uh, wise men. Anyway, on to our next question from Bradley. Hi both. A massive fan of the podcast, really enjoying it, so keep it up. My question is, what are both of your top three go-to Christmas films? Cheers. Well, I always watch White Christmas. I love White Christmas. I also really love Some Like It Hot, which is also kind of a Christmassy film. But every year since I was a teenager, my family have always watched Where Eagles Dare. My dad loves this film and my mum always loved that film and it was always on. And so I carry on this tradition, even if I'm not with my mum and dad, on Christmas Day. Broadsword calling Danny Boy. Exactly. Broadsword calling Danny Boy. This is the Richard Burton film with Clint Eastwood where they escape from the castle. And the whole thing about this film is, one, you never know each Christmas Day, is this the year they're not going to make it? You never know. And then also you get to the end of the film and you sit in the plane as they escape. And suddenly... Well, don't give it away. The mystery as to what's gone on is revealed. And every year I understand it at that point, I think. And then the next year when you start the film, I have no who's idea what's going on. Every year I have no idea. Who's the secret Nazi spy? Who is the secret okay, Nazi well, spy? I, I'm, I'm going to go... sword calling Danny Boy. Yes, I would go for, a, I'm afraid, a more... Tradi- well, actually, no, they're, they're pretty traditional. I, I would go for a Richard Curtis Christmas. I absolutely love love actually of course like everyone else i like the bridget jones's diary one that's set at christmas where she wears that funny christmas jumper at the uh, when she turns up is it dressed as a reindeer or something i can't remember exactly oh, at, yeah. uh, at her mum's christmas party and then there's also notting hill of course of course given i'm you know part of the notting hill set i know it's not really a christmas movie um, but I did uh, think Rambo was a bit kind of not really you, whereas Notting Hill does feel much more. I'm you. a child of the 80s as yeah. well as an adult of the 1990s. <laughs> so uh, those are those are our Christmas movies. What's your favourite bit in Notting Hill? Oh, the bit maybe when he brings Julia Roberts around to his friends, and the actor who later pl- plays the Earl in Downton Abbey doesn't know who she is and says, oh, yeah, no, the acting doesn't really pay, does it? And she just says, well, I've been paid millions of pounds. And he doesn't realise that she's basically a top film star. That's really, that's really amusing. I guess that's what, I mean, that must be what it's like living in Notting Hill. I mean, you know, you just well, there's always a crowd outside the street that the door, bookshop and they're big film stars. You there's always a crowd. I live around the corner and there's always a crowd outside the bookshop to this day, even though that movie was 20 years ago or so. And there's always a crowd outside the blue door where... Uh, you know, the guy in his underpants steps out. Our final question. And this is a taster of things to come. because but don't, we, don't give it away. Ed. I'm Let's... not going to give it away, but I'm just saying it's a taster of things to come. Okay. A taster. Hello, this is Kemi calling from Essex. What do your listeners think I should get my boss for Christmas? He's 43, married with two children, works very hard and never gets a break. I know he likes Julie Cooper novels, 
but I think he's already got them all. Any suggestions? Mm, Kemi from Essex, wanting to help her boss. Her boss. Who needs help? What do, what do we think? Well, uh, I, mean, I, didn't look, I would say after the um, shambles of the last few weeks, he probably needs a new home secretary. And at my sense, Kemi's probably auditioning. Well, I was also thinking, you know, you can frankly afford anything. So what do you get? Someone, you know, who can afford everything. Happy memories. Something money can't buy, which exactly. in British politics turns out to be a poll lead. One of the great things about Britain is you can spend millions of pounds and it doesn't make much difference, in my experience, to your electoral fortunes. Mm. Um, but I, I, would, <laughs> I think, you know, look, I think uh, Rishi Sunak has brought a bit more stability and sanity to our politics in 2023. I think he deserves a nice break. And I think he's quite into his gadgets. So whatever the latest gadget is, Kemi, whatever the, the new Apple product is or something like that, because after all, he is a tech bro at heart. Look, let's hope Rishi and his family have a fabulous Christmas and some quiet away. They deserve it. Kemi Badnock, thank you so much for sending us in that question. Brilliant of you to do so. Hope you have a good Christmas as well. And um, we're going to have a special festive edition of our podcast next week with questions which have been sent in, including from some other familiar voices who've sent us in voice notes, uh, but also lots of our listeners as well. So um, thanks so much for sending in the questions. Do make sure you tune in next Thursday. We will see you then and have a happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.